All right, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going verses 17 through 26. As Chris mentioned, uh, my name is Andrew. I do partner with Anthony here to uh, oversee Redemption Communities. Uh, also help out on Saturday mornings for the Bible study that we do at Press at 7. Uh, come there if you're a man, because that's the men's Bible study. Um, or Friday morning at 6.30, um, which is, I've heard is the better version of that Bible study. We're in the blue Bible. If you don't have one, there's one underneath your seat or maybe the seat next to you. That is yours. If you didn't come to church with the Bible, you should go home with one. Take that one with you. In that Bible, it's page number 136. So assuming we've all got there by now, I'll go ahead. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 17 through 26. It says, And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do not and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took up the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's still morning, right? 11 o'clock. Yeah, that's morning for sure. Well, like Chris said, my name is Anthony. Uh, I help co-lead the RC, just like you said, with Andrew, who just read for you. And I am not our pastor, Josh Watt, who is out with his dad right now. I know two weeks of guest preachers can get a little dicey. Um, so we'll see how this one goes. I don't know. Chris, Chris pay me. He kind of set the bar Hi for you guys, but please set your expectations low and we can step up from there. We're actually in the fifth week of a sermon series. You can see it on the screen called We Want a King. And this series is encapsulating the life of the first three kings of Israel. Uh, King Saul, which we're going to talk about today. Then King David and King Solomon. Today is a heavy one. The final week of King Saul, the title of my sermon is The Lord Rejects Saul. 
In this chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 15, we see that the Lord did reject uh, Saul. But there are three specific themes that I see emerge out of this text. So they'll be on the screen. The first theme is the theme of rejection. The second is the theme of evil. And the third is the theme of authority. Now, you guys are going to have to bear with me. First service, I started to lose my voice a little bit. I felt it as I was preparing yesterday. I felt it. So I might press the brakes a little bit. We'll see how that goes. But again, please pray for me. What we're going to do before we dive into the text and get to work is let's go to God and lift up this text to him in worship. God, you are holy, and we cherish your words like honey. We need you at all times, even now as we sit and we consider you and we wait on you. God, we need you. Desperately, we are all in need of you. Lord, help me as I preach this text that I would be faithful to your word. Give us all humble, listening ears, including myself, that we would hear the word illuminated as you use me as your vessel, as your tool to to preach and to teach and to show us truth. How much we need you, God, only you know, but we submit to you now, and we look forward to hearing from you. In Jesus' name. The first theme, rejection. 1 Samuel 15 isn't where rejection starts. It actually starts in 1 Samuel 8 when the people of Israel go to Samuel, who's a prophet, and they say, Samuel, you're you're getting old. Not only that, but your boys, they're not cut out to lead us. We want a king like the nations. And what this does is it prompts frustration out of Samuel, who's upset with this request from the people of Israel. And God speaks to Samuel in chapter 8, and he says this. Samuel, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And he says, let's give them what they want. And then he calls Saul and anoints him as king. This is odd because Saul's kingship is initiated out of the rejection of God. Imagine this. Imagine here at North Mountain, we say, hey, we want to start a ministry we, this, this is going to be a crucial ministry. It's going to weave in and out of all the other ministries. It's going to be vital to the way we serve our community moving forward. And we want one of you to lead it. But here's a little catch. We don't want to pray. We don't want to go to God and ask for him to help us. We are going to rely entirely on you to lead us. We don't want to seek the uh, the spirit. We don't want to fast. We don't want to go to his word. That's what you're here for. We trust you. We trust your expertise and your experience. Please step into this role. How odd would that have been? That would be so wild. But that's essentially what the people of Israel are asking for by asking for a king like the nations. Why would they do this? They know they have this access to God, so why would they want to be like the nations? Here's what I think as I prepare for this text. I think that they think in their mind, their perspective is that the throne of authority over their lives is empty or soon will be empty with Samuel's death when he dies and he passes on. They think they're going to be leaderless that there's not going to be any lords sitting on the throne and they're going to be exposed to the other nations. 
That's what they believe, and they reject God because of it. So here's a question. It'll be on the screen. What happens in the heart of people, you and I, when we believe the throne of authority over our lives is empty? What happens? My answer, pretty simple. We try to fill the throne with something else. The ancient Israelites, they asked for a king like the nations. That's what they wanted to put in the throne of authority. You and I, any number of idols. Think about, I mean, the the list is endless. Career, our own time, our money, our family, our relationships, maybe even doing good works, checking off Christian or religious boxes. But I think we can sum it up for us in that we want ourselves to sit on the throne of authority over our own lives. We want to be king of our own lives. Whether it's the ancient Israelites asking for King Saul or us wanting ourselves on the throne, neither one is God. This isn't something that just the people of God struggle with. This isn't just the inclination of the Israelites or the church today. This is something that all of humanity bends towards. This is our natural fleshly disposition to reject the God of the universe. Psalm 2 says it this way. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The cords of God's authority are over us, and the kings and the rulers, including us, want to burst ourselves free from those things since Genesis 3, when humanity committed its first sin against God. We want to make our own rules, be our own boss, call our own shots. We want a voice, a seat at the table. We want power. This is our fleshly disposition. So when we come to 1 Samuel 15, with the rejection of God has already taken place, God has already given them over to King Saul, who is now ruling over them. What a strange request. It would be like, let's say you had a direct personal relationship with the company you worked for. And let's just say that you worked for Apple, like a worldwide, a huge company. And you have this relationship with Tim Cook, and he wants to hear from you. You have an idea. He's like, that's a good idea. Let's see if we can implement that. He guides you. He mentors you in all of these things. And then you go out maybe for some drinks or some food with your buddies, and they start talking about their supervisors and how much they are not fans. But you're sitting there thinking, what's, what's a supervisor? What is that? And they're like, well, it's like somebody... You know, there's the owner, but then there's the, the EVPs and the SVPs and the VPs and directors, and then there's the supervisor, and then you're way at the bottom underneath all of those people, and they kind of guide you, and they're your boss. What? I didn't, who's doing that? that? That's every company, every organization has these tiers in place. Oh, not me. I, I can go straight to Tim anytime I want. And you start to feel, instead of feeling blessed, thinking, man, I have direct access to the CEO of the company. You start to feel a little jealous, a little FOMO. I'm missing out on some stuff. So you go to Tim. Hey, Tim, I think I want a supervisor. he probably think you lost your mind, right? <laughs> you can come to me anytime. My door is wide open. I've implemented some of your ideas. You understand what's going to happen if I get you a manager? 
They might micromanage. No matter how, I can go through a million resumes, pick the person I think is going to be best. They still might micromanage you. They might still misrepresent you, work you to the bone until you burn out. There are so many things that can go wrong. Is this what you really want? Yes, I want a middle manager, please. <laughs> this is the nature and foolishness of what Israel has done. They've asked for a king other than God. What a foolish request, but God gives it to them. He gives them Saul and he anoints them. Let's pause and think about Saul for a second. Josh has talked about this a few times over the weeks. He is a neutral character, which is honestly is not how I saw Saul, saw Saul before. You know, I would read these passages as though I was a bird in the sky, in the clouds, looking down on it, very two-dimensional, very flat. Honestly, I would try to gloss over these passages so I can get to the good stuff, King David, right, or King Solomon. I try to bypass Saul. In my mind, he was always a bad guy. But what we've seen over the past few weeks is that's not entirely the case. He gets some wins under his belt. Some light shines through a little bit. But eventually, over time, we see some cracks in his armor, ultimately leading us to 1 Samuel 15 when he's rejected due to his disobedience. Imagine a big dam holding back a, a giant raging river, and you see a little crack and some water drip. You think, uh-oh. That's not good, for sure. But let's get a repair guy out here. They'll fix it up, no problem. Then you see another crack, and then another crack, and out of nowhere, a giant chunk of concrete shoots out, and then another chunk, and another chunk, and the whole dam bursts. This is basically summing up the kingship of Saul, where he did his work at first. He did some good stuff at first, but apart from the grace of God, it just crumbled. It, it eroded. And God ultimately rejected him because he was disobedient as the king. So one thing I want to do as we jump into scripture is go to the same text that our scripture reader just read. But I'm actually going to start at verse 22. So if you have your Bible, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Here we go. Samuel said, talking to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, he has also rejected you from being king. Some scholars think at this point, Saul drops to his knees, begging Samuel. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. In essence, I sum it up this way. The king is rejected by the rejected king of kings. In summary, considering this theme of rejection, we see two things. 
The people rejected God as their king in 1 Samuel 8 and asked for one like the nations. One little thing to note is this is not something they explicitly said. They didn't go to Samuel and said, hey, we're rejecting God. And in, in light of that, we want to ask for a king. They just asked for a king like the nations, but God considered it his own rejection. The second thing in summary is God gave them a king, Saul, who he subsequently rejected due to disobedience. What did Saul do? What was so bad that it lost him the title of Israel's first anointed king? We know he disobeyed, but what what did he do exactly? And that drives us to the second theme of evil. And what we need to do is we need to go back to the very beginning of 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That means listen up. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The the Lord's anger is stirred up against the Amalekites and comes to Saul and says, you need to eradicate them. We get a glimpse. We see that during the time of Moses, they attacked Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt. I want to put a little bit more color, a little bit more context. Let's go all the way back to Deuteronomy 25. You can open there, but it'll be on the screen as well. Verse 17 says this. Remember what what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you. What kind of people lag behind? Consider that. And he did not fear God. Verse 19, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This is hundreds of years before Saul. God has not forgotten. And he's commanded his people not to forget. Essentially, what God is doing is issuing what Jews would have called a holy ban. Ancient cancellation, except this is eradication. This isn't just removed from social media platforms. This is in total, complete destruction of men, women, children, even babies. If I can be If I can be fully transparent, this command, it does something in my heart, especially as a father. I have five daughters. When I read this command, there's a part of me that's just like, ugh. Mm. What am I supposed to do with this? Listen, men and women, some some of y'all's kids, three-piece combo, no problem. I don't mind at all. But babies, babies, God, 
Now, just like before, it's easy to gloss over, read it from the clouds, two-dimensional flat, but we don't have the luxury of doing that. We have to face the reality of what God's commanding here. A few things to note, to be fair, some scholars think that there would have been very few kids and women in these camps, mostly war parties and things like that. Some scholars think that if they were in those camps, they would have escaped once the battle began. And maybe, maybe that's true. But we're not looking at what might have happened at the end. We have to look at what did God say? Holy ban, total eradication of the Amalekites for something that their ancestors did hundreds of years before any of them were even born. So I need to make this real for all of us. I need us to put some flesh and bones into the command. So if you could put up that picture. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a father of five beautiful girls, all daughters. This is my youngest, Selah. She is one and a half now, a little bit older. And this is taken about two or three months ago. I said this last service, but she looks a lot taller in this picture than she really is. She's little, though. She's a little, she's a little tyke. Um, and this is, not, this is not warfare with machine guns or sniper rifles or jet planes. This is swords and spears and axes and hammers. Soldiers of Israel would come into homes and see faces like this. And they would have to kill a child, children just like this to obey the command of God. What do we do when we come to this type of command? Do we just say, hey, God can do whatever he wants. He's omnipotent. He's in total control. I guess you could, but I can't do that. I can't. My heart aches in me to consider the idea of somebody doing this to my Selah. There's really only two things. When the word hits our own head with the our own preferences and our own opinions and in our own emotions, there's only two options when those things aren't lining up. One is we look at this passage and say, God, you need to bend. You need to step aside here or I'm out. I'm out. And there's many people, there's a whole movement called the deconstructionist movement where people are abandoning faith in Christ. Now, Don't want to minimize a lot of that has to do with spiritual abuse within churches, trauma that people are experiencing. I've felt it, maybe many of you. That's a reality. I'm not going to downplay that. But for some, they're coming to texts like this, and they can't reconcile a God of mercy, love, grace, and justice with this, this type of command. And so they bow out. This is a reality that many of us have to decide Is this a God I can continue to worship? The second option is we take our emotion, our opinions, and we hold it out to God. And we say, this is how I feel. This is what I think, God. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to navigate this. I feel angry and sad and so many other things. But I submit to you because you are Lord. Where else am I going to go? You are God. Those are our only options. Ultimately, where I've landed is that God commands or determines what is good and evil, and he judges evil how he sees fit. Every command of God is just because he is a God of justice. He doesn't owe grace or mercy to anyone 
on earth. And to withhold grace doesn't mean he is no longer just. We did not invent justice. I know it's a buzzword in our culture. It didn't come from our minds. Justice originates and emanates out of God. What happens next? The command is given. What does Saul do? Let's go to verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Laam, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, a totally different group of people, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Enshur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. I want your ears to perk up with verse 9 here. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. All that was good. In essence, Saul is disagreeing with the command. In fact, as we heard the scripture reader say earlier, he was actually trying to justify himself. I believe Saul deluded himself into thinking he was being obedient when, in fact, he said, this is actually good. God said this is all, this is all evil. It should all be destroyed. Saul gets there and says, wait a second. I think God was wrong. Maybe he didn't see all of this, but this is not all bad. But he did destroy some of it and counted some of it worthless. Notice that it was the men, women, and children he counted as worthless when he kept all the stuff and King Agag. So there's some major red flags happening in Saul's decision here. Saul determined that some was worthy of being preserved when God wanted it entirely destroyed. And the heart of this we see in Isaiah 5 with the warning. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe which is an ancient way to say warning. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I sum it up by saying it is wrong to call good what God calls evil and vice versa versa, remember, he is the authority that determines what is good and evil, not from us, not from our flippant, always changing opinion or emotions, but from God. How does a person find themselves in a position who once served God get to a point where they're disagreeing with God? He calls something evil, they call it good. There's a lot of different ways, but one of the major steps that I see is you start to see church or God's people as a means to your end, as a product or a business that needs to serve you or to serve me. And one of the major services in our culture that we want from the church, actually from anybody, is to affirm and validate who we are, who we think we are. We want everyone to say you are perfect and good. 
You don't need to be challenged or changed in any way. I'm not going to question you. We want to be affirmed so bad, and I do too. I'm not on the stage like, oh, you want to be affirmed and validated. I'm perfectly stable in my identity. (laughs) It feels so good to be validated by other people. Even if you know you did something wrong and they're like, hey, man, right on, right on. You're still like, it's like water. You're just like drinking it up. In the day of social media, I think many of us are discipled more by Instagram than we are by the word of God or Jesus himself. We look at the word and we say, let me just dive into the word here. Open, okay, that's it for the month, maybe the year. And then Instagram, we're just on it. It's just digesting it. It's just every constantly, constantly, constantly quotes and memes and captions, inspiration. You don't do you, boo boo. It's all live your truth, live your best life. That's one of my favorites. Whatever you want, whoever you are, nobody can tell you nothing. Nobody can tell you nothing. So we get there. That's kind of a first step into descent. But eventually we start to develop and form what we would call our authentic self, who we identify with, who we believe we truly are, regardless of whatever the word says. This is who I am. And the church needs to affirm me. And don't think that I'm talking about what you might be thinking I'm talking about. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about me because this is something I want, too. This is my flesh, too. God knows me. He knows I'm going through a tough season, that I'm just tired, that this is all taking place. So he would not expect me to do X, Y, and Z, regardless of whether his word says it or not. He knows me. He cares for me. He would never ask me to do something that doesn't align with the way I feel inside. One way I've heard a, a, a preacher say it is, singing to God and lifting hands. And this is not to say you got to check off the box of lifting your hands. It's just an example. But maybe there's something inside you when we're singing that says, man, lift up your hands. And you think, maybe that's the spirit. But there's more of you that says, that doesn't feel right. I don't really feel like lifting my hands, even though that voice is saying, surrender, lift them up. And maybe it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it does, right? And you say, I'm not lifting my hands because that wouldn't be true to my authentic self. And then eventually we get to that place where we just flat out disagree with God on many, many things. We have one foot in, one foot out. Don't live that way. What an awful way to live back and forth. Either go full stride in one direction or full stride in the other. Don't stay in the middle, on the fence about anything, especially about God. Decide this day who you will serve, either yourself or him. You can't do both. Josh talked about this a few weeks back, three buckets. There's the bucket we create in our head of the obedient. There's many people in this church I would put in that bucket, people who are not perfect, but when they sin, they come to God, they confess, they repent, they dive into biblical community, messy, messy community, but they still dive into it. They're faithful to God. Again, even as they mess up, they still pursue him. They're still pursuing his mission and his holiness. That would be the one bucket. Then there's a disobedient bucket. And I don't want to pick on anyone there, but I think we all kind of think of different things that we would put in that disobedient bucket, essentially people who just don't want to live for the, the Lord of the Bible. But then there's this middle bucket we see, the partial obedience bucket. 
which is I'm going to live my life one foot in, one foot out, just like I was talking about, picking and choosing what I give to God and what I keep for myself. What we see in 1 Samuel 15 is that partial obedience bucket doesn't exist. It doesn't exist no matter what anyone says. There is either obedience to God or there's a rejection of God. That's the truth. That's the reality. Anything other than total obedience equals disobedience. There's no partial obedience. Saul thought, I'm being obedient to God. This is what I've done. And Samuel said, you have disobeyed the Lord, and because of that, you are rejected. So in summary, considering our theme of evil, two things. The first is that God determined the Amalekites were evil because of what their ancestors had done, deemed them worthy of destruction. A holy ban is issued, and he commanded as much. The second thing is Saul disobeys, and God determines this disobedience is also evil, regardless of Saul's attempt to justify. And this leads us to our final theme of authority. I'm going to rapid fire through a couple verses in in chapter 15. You don't have to go to them. You just listen. So verse 1, the Lord sent me to anoint you king. Verse 17, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission. Verse 26, the Lord has rejected Saul from kingship. It is so ironic that the people of Israel rejected God because who chose the king that they were asking for? God did. Who gave that king commands? God did. And when that king was disobedient, who rejected him? God did. The rejection of God stays in the the hearts of the people. God doesn't get up from his throne and say, okay, I concede. You guys take over from here. He stays on his throne. Even as we reject him, he is still ruling over all creation. He is the authority. Psalm 47 says it this way. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth, all the earth. God reigns over the nations, not just Israel. God sits on his holy throne for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. There is nobody, nobody higher than God, our king. But before we can fully establish that God is the authority over all things. There are two verses in chapter 15 that throw a little wrench into that. Verse 11 and 35. So let me read. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it. Verse 11 says this. This is God talking. I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret. Verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. How can an all-knowing, all-powerful God regret Did he not have control? Did he not see that Saul would commit this evil in his sight? What makes this even stranger is verse 29 in which Samuel says, God does not lie or have regret because he's not a man. Wait, is this a contradiction? Make up your mind. Does he regret or does he not regret? Is God's authority limited? And if that's the case, is he truly God? be honest, even tossing out that rhetorical question makes me a little nervous, but it's one we have to consider, right? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Does he regret 
or does he not? So there's four things that I think are happening here that I, I think will answer the question and make it clear for us. So the first thing is emotions don't derive from people, but from God. Just like justice, we don't make up emotions. We're not like, hey, you, have you ever heard of happiness? No, I, yeah, it's a thing I've been working on. I think I'm going to think it's going to be a, a big win for humanity. We don't do that. Every emotion we experience from sadness to happiness and everything in between, it derives from God, from his being. He makes us in his image. God is living. He's not, look, see that picture of Saul there? I don't know if it's a picture or a statue or what's going on, but it's a little spooky. It's a little stoic. That is not like God. I think we see God in that light. God is emotional. God has emotions. Two, we're using imperfect language to describe a perfect God. There is a heavenly language barrier. The the people who wrote scripture by the power of the Spirit had their language to describe what was going on, especially when it came to the heart of God. Even the phrase, the heart of God, isn't quite capturing the reality. It's us trying to use these little noises that come out of our lips to describe a holy, perfect God. And it's imperfect. So we hear the word regret and we think, oh my goodness, what's going on there? That word can't encapsulate everything that's happening. Three, and this is really the core. I can really cut out all the others and just say this one. This is an expression of grief, not powerlessness. Imagine this scenario. Let me paint a picture. You have a father with a son, and they're in the ABCs of their life real early on, and this father loves his son, prays for him, guides him, pours into his son. But he has this grand vision for his son's life, the XYZ. They're in the ABCs, but he's praying for XYZ, which is a life fulfilled, lived out for God with joy in his heart. He wants his son to be faithful to the Lord. That's what he's praying, ultimate plan but they're in the ABCs. Like many of us, the son comes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I, I want to do this, some kind of lack of wisdom or get on the path of rebellion even. Maybe the son doesn't quite recognize what it is for what he said. The father does, though, and he says, son, don't go on that path. Don't make that decision because it will be bad. You'll be headed towards destruction. But the son thinks in his inexperience, I know better. Or maybe my dad doesn't know. Maybe he's trying to prevent me from going down the, this way because it's, it's going to be fun or it's, he just wants to control my destiny. And the father realizes either one, I can kind of just clamp down and eventually my son will break those cords and run off in rebellion. Or I can set up guardrails that my son can't see, come to him, express my heart and desire, but ultimately tell him, son, it's your decision. The son decides to go on that path that his father warned him of, and sure enough, hits head first into the wall and comes back to his father with tears in his eyes and heart broken. And the father embraces his son, kisses his forehead, and loves on him. There's two types of regrets taking place. The regret of the son, which is, I wish I had listened to my dad. I wish I can go back. This is not what God is expressing in verse 11 and 35. The second regret is the father who knew exactly what would happen, 
but now knows that the son had to make his choice and he still has an opportunity to take him to that master plan to XYZ of a life faithfully lived to God. He's still going to do that. That's still his plan. But he's still grieving over what his son did. I regret that you had to experience this, son. This is what is happening in God. And then four, just a just nail in the coffin. God unfolds his grand restorative plan using the limited free will of sinful human beings. God is not telling you what kind of coffee you should get in any morning or what clothes you should wear. Now, God will intervene and interject into our lives. I'm sure there are many stories out there where he's done just that. You get to a place and think, I definitely didn't get here. God did something in my life. We see that also in scripture where God works and intervenes. But the beauty of being made in his image is that there are, there is a free will that he gives us. It has a boundary line around it. We're not God. We can't do everything we want. There is a boundary, but we get to create and live and make these choices. As God is unfolding his, his grand meta-narrative, his ultimate plan to restore all of creation and bring shalom, harmony, back to the world and unify his people back to himself and people with each other. That's X, Y, Z. God is taking us there, but he allows us to continue to make choices, whether good or bad, and he will use those choices for his ultimate purposes. So in summary, Considering the theme of authority, there's three things. God has authority over his people, even when they reject him, or I should say, even when we reject him. Two, God has authority to determine good versus evil. He sets those lines, not us. And three, he has the authority to offer grace or execute justice, whether through a holy ban against the Amalekites or rejection of Saul as king. So as we wrap up, I want to uh, give a summary of these themes. So rejection, Israel rejected God and he rejected their king, Saul. The second theme that we see, evil. The Amalekites were deemed as evil by God, as was Saul's disobedience. And third, which we just read, authority. Both previous themes of rejection and evil point to the reality that God never stepped down from his throne. He rejects. He commands and he judges. When we reject God for our counterfeit kings, even if that's us, he rejects those kings because only he will sit on his throne of authority over all creation, including our lives. Even as we make our bad decisions and reject him, he stands with us through our disobedience, even grieving himself. But here's the good news. He doesn't leave us in the ashes of our own sinful lives. He doesn't leave us there, but he gives us a good king. Here is the good news. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is not rejected, but accepted by the Father, and he accepts us. He doesn't say, hey, clean up your act, and then maybe you can come, come into my house. He takes us in all of our junk, and he accepts us. This is the core of the gospel. Saul's not on that throne. Good thing. Jesus is. Jesus is not evil, but he's good, and he makes us good. You are not what you think in your head. I know culturally we like to talk a big game, but inside we're so insecure, aren't we? Talking so down to ourselves, but with his people, he makes us good. 
He makes us holy. Jesus has all authority, and by his name, every knee will bow on heaven, in earth. They will bow, and he even gives his people authority. What a mystery that is. God knew that we would be lost in our sinful ways, so he sent his son, Jesus the Christ, to be our one true eternal king. And by his life, death, and resurrection, he gives us new life. Not only that, he makes us a royal people, co-heirs to his heavenly kingdom. We are not just servants, but co-heirs. You know that over a billion dollar lottery is, is nothing, it's dirt compared to the inheritance we have in Christ. His kingdom appeared first with his coming and it exists. Here's the powerful part. It exists in his spirit through us right now in this room. The kingdom of God is here. Not there, not there, here with us even now. The good news is that Saul's not on the throne. Our idols are not on the throne. We're not even on the throne. Only one is on the throne, and his name is Jesus. Will you follow him today? Let's pray. God, how magnificent you are. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, but not just that, but your gospel. As we consider the heaviness of what your people did, causing so much grief that we see even reflected in our own lives when we're disobedient. You have so much grace towards us. Thank you. Thank you that you allow us to come together to hear your word. God, we worship you. We love you. And as always, we need you desperately. For all the hearts in this room, especially the ones that question you, that are angry with you, that don't even believe in you, God, speak to them now. You are not angry, but you offer joy through your son. And it's an invitation for every single one of us. Even if we've been walking this life for years upon years, this invitation is here that we joyfully get to live into. What a beautiful thing, God. What a beautiful thing that is for us, this imperfect people, to enjoy you, a perfect God. God, help us as we navigate our own emotions and our own opinions. Help us not to depend on those things, how flippant those things are, but how stable you are in your truth. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.